you didn't know anybody in Roanoke that had it, so you just went and did whatever you did. Um, and then all of a sudden, I had friends that, that were uh, HIV positive. I, had, I started losing friends that were HIV positive. I mean, you can't live your life, but just be careful. Um, you know, um, yeah, we all um, carried condoms uh, because we had to. We were going to sit home and knit and be saints. That wasn't who we were. But we were, we were going to play and be safe. When I started losing friends in the latter 80s and early 90s to something that we didn't know what it was called AIDS, that was a very scary time. Um, and I lost about 15 friends in about two or three years, uh, which was a pretty terrible thing. Uh, and then I would go on to lose friends for another 15 years. And I was out on the corner when I was sitting down with a friend because we just come out the club and we're sitting there talking. She walks to me, you know what she said to me to my face? She's a girl who you had the virus, girl. Well, it's like this girl. May I sing at your funeral? Right out of the blue. And you know what I told her? You might sing around, but don't let me yodel at yours first. From the Southwest Virginia LGBTQ History Project. My name is Samantha. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And this is a podcast about the history of HIV and AIDS in Southwest Virginia. It was... uh... I remember going through some some process of thinking like, well, here I've just come out and I've been enjoying all this and having a good time, and now this, you know, the gay plague had started. On June 5, 1983, the Roanoke Times reported that AIDS was now present in the Roanoke Valley in southwest Virginia. The first local AIDS patient had reportedly died a month earlier at Roanoke Memorial Hospital. He had acquired HIV in New York City, but he returned home to Roanoke to be with his family to die at home in the Blue Ridge Mountains. A second AIDS case that same year concerned a patient at the Veterans Administration, or VA hospital, in Salem. By November, he too had died of AIDS. When HIV was first discovered in the U.S. two years earlier, in 1981, it was often referred to as gay cancer, or GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. People thought it was a gay disease, something that happened to people, namely men, who engaged in non-normative sexual behaviors. The truth was much more frightening 
almost anyone could get HIV. And yet a persistent stigma against LGBTQ people, and particularly gay men and trans women, carried on throughout the decades, from the 1980s through the mid-90s. Gay men in Southwest Virginia, just like elsewhere in the country, experienced shocking levels of both disease and discrimination. Many experienced the deaths of their friends and their lovers. We thought it was just something that was happening in the Golden Gate area in around California. We thought that was just where it was happening and it was sort of an isolated thing. It wasn't happening anywhere else. We were wrong. Boy, were we wrong. Because by the mid-80s, the mid it had taken everybody. And as I said, I was in D.C. People don't realize what it was like to have a friend who was at that time diagnosed and dying because you would have to have a friend, a very good friend, to come to the hospital to sometimes to even feed you and dress you because the dietary staff would not come into your room and feed you. You seldom got a doctor to come in to see you because it was so new and it was so, people were so afraid. And by the time you end up dying and have to go home, you have lost your job. You don't have anywhere to go. And if you're one of the kids who came here whose family had thrown them out and that kind of thing, you are really uh, up shit creek. So you're out in the street, nowhere to go, there is no medicines for you, and you're gonna die. One of your friends have got to take you in, because you're not going home. These kids today, or I should say a population of gay America today, can't, they can't phantom it. You don't know what it's like to lose three, four, five hundred people in less than a year or two. They're all dead. Well, I have to take a breath. Because as you well know, that was like all of a sudden this very dark cloud descends. And yes, we heard about the gay cancer, and we heard about it in San Francisco and New York, but then we heard about it in D.C. And you know, D.C. was a favorite place for uh, gay men who wanted to have a bigger playground uh, to go on the weekends, you know. Uh, the Lost and Found was the most popular bar, but then there were the baths, and you know, that. it was a time of great liberation for gay men, and uh, we were feeling our oats, and to have that, that bastard of a disease come into our party was just, I mean, I, I, if if I had any, any thought of resisting doing this interview, it was us getting to that point because it's stepping back into a time of, it's just hard for anyone in that time to tell you what that's like.
In the face of a quickly evolving public health crisis, gay groups in Southwest Virginia almost immediately jumped into action. These gay groups provided outreach, education, and they created new pathways for HIV-positive folks to access life-saving care. For example, the Park, a gay nightclub in Roanoke, which opened in 1978, had begun to offer a monthly venereal disease clinic in a back room of the bar. By 1983, gay men, in some cases afraid of visiting the local health department due to discrimination, got tested for sexually transmitted diseases in this familiar place, right in the gay bar. The gay rap group, a men's support group in Roanoke, invited the local health department director to address their group about HIV. And the Roanoke Valley Gay Alliance, beginning in the mid-80s and through the 1990s, organized AIDS health workshops and facilitated condom distribution in the community. By the turn of the 1990s, several new organizations had taken shape in Southwest Virginia to facilitate the region's response to the AIDS crisis, including the Roanoke AIDS Project and BRASS, Blue Ridge AIDS Support Services. I think one of one of my it wasn't my favorite project, but it was the long longest lasting project that I had was uh, starting the uh, helping to uh, establish the Blue Ridge Aid Support Services or Grass uh, through the Council of Community Services. I've done a lot of you know gratis work, but I was called upon in I guess the early '90s, and I can't remember what year it was. It was I just know it was after I'd lost about 15 friends to AIDS. Uh, I was called upon by the Council of Community Services to help create something, and they weren't really kind of sure what it was. Uh, it turned out to be BRASS, Blue Ridge Eight Support Services, and what it was is we assisted people with AIDS and HIV positive to get housing and pay utilities and apply for various programs, including the Ryan White Fund, which is to this day is a very big fun to help people out. So we essentially were a clearinghouse for people living with AIDS to find resources to survive if they were having a, a tough time. And I, I was the president of Brass for probably, I think, two years. And then I served on the board, I think, for 15, until we finally went out of business, <laughs> gratefully. <laughs> at the VA system, and the VA system got the first AIDS patients here. Um, they were mostly guys who had been involved in the military and came back. Or they would have maybe got them because the, the, um, there was a physician uh, at uh, the VA who early on began to specialize 
and became really the major spokesperson for a medical community on how to deal with AIDS. And uh, this clinical psychologist was uh, at the VA. She called me one day and uh, she called me and she told me that there was a need to have a support group run and she would like to have my help in doing that uh, as an out gay man. And she was a straight woman and so she wanted me to help. And of course, the first thought in my body was run away. But I, what can I do? I have to say, oh, yes, I will. Uh, for a period of time, they met at my house because there was nowhere else to meet. Uh, and, but then there were a number of the guys who were uncomfortable meeting at my house, and I understand that. So somehow an alternative was developed. I really don't know what we did at that point. Um, but it had gotten beyond the point where there were like three or four or five or seven guys there, you know, there that the community was having much more of a problem issue with AIDS. Gay women also felt the impact of AIDS. While HIV rates among lesbians remained quite low, lesbian and bisexual activists and community organizers in Southwest Virginia responded to the AIDS crisis, namely by showing up to support gay men. This, however, was at times controversial in the lesbian feminist communities that had worked so hard throughout the 1980s to create spaces that were separate from men and from gay male society. Um, so the women's community was very aware of it, um, that they, could, they had a choice. They could choose to just keep their mouths shut because lesbians don't get AIDS at that time. Statistically, it just was a, a neg negligible. It wasn't, we just simply weren't part of the AIDS crisis. We could choose to be silent and be invisible and nobody would say anything. When the AIDS support groups got started, the majority of them were started by women. The majority of them were started by women who were bisexual. Um, and almost always in the medical field. It was a very, to me, a very heroic, a very, um, moral bound, there was a morality there that was, to me, just amazing. Mm -hmm. And as this continued, the men began to see it and began to, I mean, there was a picture of a pride march and here's this gay man sitting on the lawn with a big, huge poster sign on a stick that said, thank you lesbians. 
I went to prisons, I went to high schools, I went to colleges, uh, talked to churches, and it was always about um, sex, <laughs> condoms, safer sex, STDs. Um, so I was the original condom lady. <laughs> I would go around the bars and do outreach and hand out safer sex packets and um, that's how they knew me. Here comes the condom lady. And uh, so I worked with them. Um, in the, that was in the 90s as well. And then in the 80s, mid 80s, uh, mid to late 80s, I, I was the executive director for one of the aid service. We, we established an aid service organization. And we were called Sisters in the Name of Love because a bunch of drag queens started it because they knew if they could do fundraising, then we could provide funds for people who needed it. Food, clothing, um, housing stipends, whatever it was. I was one of a group of people who would volunteer to visit AIDS patients in the hospitals who did not have um, any family members or family members who would visit or had really had any friends. People were really scared to go in the hospital and visit. At that point, you had to put on a mask um, to go in, and it was, and these guys were just, it was really sad. And they had an AIDS support group, people who weren't hospitalized, but, you know, were sick or were infected at least. And he said, you know, I hate to ask you all to do something that might seem like the traditional woman's role, but it'd be really nice if we had like some homemade desserts when we met, you know, cookies, cake, whatever. And I said, I don't think it'll be a problem at all. I'll take it to next time we have a meeting. I did. And... There was kind of some silence, and then somebody said, somebody who's a very dear friend, okay, said, that is not our issue. Like, okay. So anyway, I just did it, and other people did it without there being any affiliation with First Friday. Um, but, you know, that was, the, that was the kind of thing that I think really sucked energy away that led to our dissolution, dissolving at some point. Um, so, yeah, and... Um, I think over the course of time, you know, if it had been in this millennium rather than in the 1980s, it would have been a whole different response. But back then, I think, and again, that wasn't a separatist thing. It was just what it was. I didn't know anything about the, the men's community. And the thing I have to say, though, and I probably started crying, is that at that time, AIDS started happening. And so my friends that were my buddies all started dying. And it was, it was scary. We didn't know what it was. And they would develop a cough, have a sore, and then all of a sudden it was a death sentence. And there were two men in particular that I was very close to that I kind of helped. And you know, this is right after the 80s when we were in Roanoke and they had moved to D.C. and whatever. But, but basically, all my core buddies all died. All died. And it's different 
like to know that and to see that but when you think about your friends like your college friends like what if you just didn't have any because they died but it was the death was frightening it was full of ridicule people laughed at it and it was Ronald Reagan and Jesse Helms and like these people deserve it and you know keep your kids away from them and it's contagious but to watch your friends become gaunt and I remember I went to see a very dear friend up in an AIDS ward and it was as much like walking into a Holocaust camp. I can't other than it was in color and they didn't have striped suits. But these beautiful, funny, dear, maddening <laughs> these people just watching them with, you know, their skin just stretched over their bones. It was it was very hard. We lost this amazing generation of men and some women, but really men. Transgender people in Southwest Virginia also particularly felt the brunt of the AIDS crisis. HIV rates among trans women, particularly trans women of color, soon reached disproportionately high levels. In the 1980s and 90s in Roanoke, some of the most visible trans people in the city were sex workers, and they faced a vicious crackdown at the hands of our local police department all in the name of public health. By the late 80s, there was even talk of quarantining people with HIV, and proposals were floated locally about maybe mandating testing of all prostitutes, or of increasing the criminalization of sex work as a means to stop women, including trans women, from spreading the disease. Many of the queens who worked the streets of Roanoke at that time are now no longer with us due to AIDS. Oh, there's only, only two that I know left. A lot of them died, a lot of them died. But I died in the 80s, 83, 88. I had a real good friend who grew up in the same town that I did. And he was, him, him and my sister behind me were in the same grade. Uh, he was going to Fairham College, and he discovered the park, and he wanted to be a drag queen. He became a drag queen. He was a prostitute, and he, but he had infected back then. That's when the early ages of uh, HIV and AIDS was out. He got infected, and then he got cancer. And when you do the chemo thing, you don't already have the immune system. It didn't work out very well. So the atmosphere was 
you know, terrible. There's, there would be no way that I would, you know, try to say to anybody that I was, you know, either gay or transsexual or anything for fear of um, being ridiculed or made fun of or, or perhaps even some type of violence. And along with that, the AIDS epidemic could just come out like early 80s too. And so that just, you know, even though I wasn't very educated about AIDS back then, it would not have been to my best interest to say in a conservative town, uh, which was ultra conservative, that, you know, I'm transsexual. Because I think, you know, if somebody like Jerry Fowler heard that, he probably would have flipped his wig. It's, uh, it's a hard time to go back because in the 80s, that's when AIDS first came out. There were 35 to 40 transvestites that was all up and down Salem Avenues. And the men could tell who was the real prostitutes, the women different from the men because the transvestites actually dressed better. Um, they dressed better, they looked better, they were clean, uh, they were not dirty. Um, and what I mean by that is, I mean, you could never find a transvestite in dirty clothes. But the real prostitutes you could, and they usually worked on Campbell Avenue. Um, I ended up moving from Salem Avenue down to Campbell Avenue where the real women worked because I could make more money. I like being safe. But in the younger years, you didn't know about, you know, back in the 70s, there was no such thing. So a lot of people didn't use condoms back in them days. I have been, I, I am, I've been HIV since 85. And I do my meds, I stay up on my meds and everything, and I'm down to non-detectable. Because I listen. Because when they first told me at the health department, I had prepared myself. I think if I hadn't prepared myself, I think it would have been a disaster for me. But I had prepared myself in years advance. So when I went and checked, me and this friend of mine went in the health department at the same time. She went in one room, I went in the other. When they told her, I heard her hit the floor. I heard her screaming, holler. That was my life. You don't play with your life. Legacies of the HIV-AIDS crisis remain with us. We still carry the stories of friends and lovers who died of AIDS. We carry these stories in our bodies, in our minds, 
in our hearts. We are always in the process of remembrance. We cannot escape the past. It haunts us. It reminds us of where we have been, of where we come from. And as new threats emerge that may impact our LGBTQ community, we in Southwest Virginia remember, recognize, and hold dear the stories of HIV and AIDS and its impact on our community. Thank you to Roanoke College Student Research Assistants Megan Reynolds and Beth Janes for their contributions to the research in this podcast. All of the audio interviews in today's podcast are drawn from oral histories in the LGBTQ History Collection at the Virginia Room, Roanoke Public Libraries, located in Roanoke, Virginia. The oral history narrators featured in today's program include Anonymous, Larry Bly, Gail Burris, Larry Forrest, Jerry Jennings, Miss Grace Kelly, Nancy Kelly, Barbara Mayberry, Don Muse, Meyer Reed, Risa, Roger Saunders, Peter Thornhill, and Edna Whittier. All of the music in today's podcast is courtesy of Purple Planet Music under Creative Commons Attribution License 3.0. For more information, see www.purple-planet.com. That's purple-planet.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and share. You can find more information about the Southwest Virginia LGBTQ plus history project and this podcast at our website, www.lgbthistory.pages.roanoke.edu. We are also on Facebook at Southwest Virginia LGBTQ History Project. And follow us on Instagram at SWVALGBTQ History. Thank you for your contributions to making history.